All right, so we're in week four of our Revelation study. We're currently in the section where Jesus is walking among the seven churches. So we could say he's walking among the church, okay? And he's inspecting each church. Each church is represented by a lampstand. And that lampstand is the presence of Christ in that church, which we've talked about, is what makes you a church. Okay, we don't designate ourselves as that. We don't label ourselves as a church. Jesus does. And so the opposite is also true. When Jesus says you're not a church anymore, when Jesus doesn't come to your meetings, you're not a church anymore. Somebody asked me last week, do you think a church that was at that point would even notice? I said, probably not. Like if you don't notice, if you have structured things and you do things in such a way that it does not require Jesus to bless it, for it to work, you're in a dangerous place, right? And so most of these churches are getting kind of the, 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 the two-handed sandwich rebuke. You get a compliment, then you get a rebuke, and then another compliment. But this church doesn't get this. This, this church, the church in Smyrna, by the way, that's not Georgia. Okay? This church doesn't get a rebuke. That is surprising. Okay? It doesn't mean this church is perfect. It means that Jesus is so blessed by them and so proud of them that there's nothing to rebuke. It's just blessing. However... It is not all good news for them, okay? But there's no rebuke, which is good news. I'll, I'll be satisfied with no rebuke from Jesus, all right? So we're going to look at that. But first, I want to give you a little bit of history, not all the history of Roman persecution, but just that pertains to this church, okay? Um, which will help you, I think, tremendously with understanding how to apply the text, okay? It's also going to help you to understand a lot of the book of Revelation, which involves a lot of persecution, okay? These words we got this morning, Job and everything else, were leading us right here, which is the, 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 one of the themes of Revelation, the themes of the church and church history is persecution. And we like to think as Americans, we live in a place that doesn't have that, but that's not true when you start to define what persecution is, all right? So we're going to get into that. Well, let's talk about Rome first, Rome and this church in Smyrna. Rome had its own cult of worship. We typically don't think about Rome as having a cult, but it did, okay? Primarily, this required its citizens to worship the emperor as God, okay, or as a God. Not as a revered leader or uh, honor or respect, but actual worship, okay, declare, to declare him a God. They would offer sacrifices to him to signify this. Okay, so it went all the way to that. It was not optional. You need to understand that. Not just in terms of you might lose your head if the emperor finds out that you're not worshiping him, but the whole culture was oriented around this cultic worship of the emperor as a God. The way you survived financially, economically, and socially was to participate in this. And if you did not participate in it, you were not going to be okay, all right? The Jews had begin, been given special permission to offer sacrifices in honor of Roman leadership as leaders without calling them gods or bowing to them. And so they had gotten special permission from Rome. Then they said, well, you have to, you have to kind of say some, you still have to participate and say we honor the emperor as our leader, but you cannot, you don't have to say he's your god will let you kind of be under this umbrella of relative safety. There was still a, me a measure, I don't know if how you feel about that, but I'm uncomfortable with that. There's still a measure of selling out, right? But it's not all the way there. It's sort of been this gray area in the middle where Rome was like, we'll kind of meet you halfway, right? This, has been, this had been this way for a very long time. Early Christians were considered to be a Jewish sect by Rome. If you can imagine, like, right after Jesus' resurrection and ascension and the Pentecost happens, the church is birthed. Initially, they were, most of the, at least the Jewish Christians, 
were still going to synagogue every week. And then they would have their own worship service, which was very interesting. What we know about it is it was centered around taking communion together. That was the one thing that would be, would have, they would not have been allowed to do at synagogue. And then they also did baptisms, and then music started coming up and other things. But initially, most Jewish Christians, Jewish followers of Christ, were going to synagogue every week, which they had grown up doing. And then they were having their own stuff, kind of more, they would save the Jesus stuff <laughs> for their meeting. Okay? And so most people from the outside looking in thought of these Christians as kind of a subset or a sect of Jewish religion. And so they were protected under this umbrella of where Rome was like, okay, we'll let you worship your God. You don't have to call our emperor God as long as you're respectful and kind of go through the motions, right? And this lasted up until the latter part of the first century, which is right around, depending on how you, where you date re- the writing of Revelation, it's towards the end of that protection, okay? Nero rose to power in Rome. And the protection of Christianity under Jewish exceptions began to erode away for several reasons, okay? First one was new religions were not allowed to emerge in the empire. And it was becoming clear that Christianity was a new thing and not just a subset of Judaism. They were being too radical and distinguishing themselves as this is a new, wait a minute, is this a new religion? We don't allow that. We've got Judaism because we conquered them, we gave them some exceptions, There's no new things, no new things allowed. And it started to seem like these Christians were a whole new thing, which we are, right? Two, the Jews had been relatively happy to revere Roman gods alongside Yahweh for a long time, and these new Christians were not so comfortable. These new Christians were going, ah, I'm not going to go to that party. I'm not going to go at all. Exception or no exception, I don't think I'm going to participate in this at all. This meant that Christians were making trouble with Rome, and so it was common for Jews of the day to complain to Rome that Christians were not a Jewish sect. They were going, hey, we're not with those people, because they're causing problems. They're starting to get negative attention from Rome, and Rome started going, hey, you Jews need to straighten this out. And so the Jews were going, wait a minute, they're not with us. They're not in our party. We have a good thing going that we're comfortable and happy with. They're not with us, right? They wanted distance between themselves and Christians. The Jews viewed Christianity as a distortion of Jewish law that offered a too easy path to salvation. That's just a bunch of greasy grace. It's too easy. One guy and everybody's saved. We don't buy it. It's supposed to be harder than that. Of course, that's a mischaracterization, right, of what Jesus does. Jesus has come and died. Jesus was actually asking for more. But it was, uh, and we'll get to that in a minute. Fifth reason, the worship of a crucified criminal and heretical rabbi as Messiah was considered blasphemy by most Jews. And so they're just like, for the same reasons they killed Jesus, they were not happy with these Jewish Christians being called good Jews. There are historical reports of Jewish leaders encouraging Roman officials and Gentiles to persecute Christians as a false and illegal religion. And we'll see that right here in our text. Okay, so you have this. In the beginning, everything was sort of comfortable. Because Christians were kind of underneath this umbrella of protection. And then through God's design, through the leadership of Jesus... The oversight of Jesus, he begins to draw distinctions. And the Jews that they worshiped alongside in the synagogue every week start to betray them and push them out of their community. And by pushing them out of their community, they push them out from under the umbrella of protection out into the storm where Rome now is looking at them with a bullseye on their back. And Nero, of all people, one of the most wicked rulers of all time, hated them because they did not acknowledge him as God, right? So after a period of Jewish slander, right, Roman persecution began in earnest. 
So we start with their friends and neighbors stabbing them in the back, reporting them to Rome. So-and-so didn't go sacrifice to you this week. And then that begins a long period of Roman persecution. The imperial cult, we could call it, which is the worship of the emperor, permeated all of city and village life in Roman territory. It was so pervasive that a person could increase their social and economic status greatly by simply participating fully in imperial worship. Imagine that. If you go to a specific pagan church, you can start out with nothing, and just by attending and being a good worshiper of the emperor, you can improve your status. It's that simple. Citizens of both upper and lower classes were required by law to sacrifice to the emperor on multiple special occasions throughout the year. Smyrna was particularly known for its loyalty to Rome, having built several temples in honor of Roman religion. So in Smyrna especially, this was a huge deal. Participating in these rituals, calling the emperor, calling Nero your god above all other gods was very important in Smyrna. To be a Christian and abstain from imperial worship would have guaranteed a fast track to poverty, exclusion from society, and ultimately prison or death. And to participate in imperial worship would have actually done the opposite. So a lot of Christians in Smyrna were worshiping God at synagogue, worshiping God in their worship, Christian worship service, taking communion, doing baptisms, doing all of this, and then on these special events and holidays throughout the year, they were going to the temple to Diana or temple to whoever in town and going there and doing sacrifices and bowing down to Nero and calling him God. And then they were just kind of going, well, I don't really believe it. And I don't really believe that, but you've got to do what you've got to do. I've got to eat. I've got a business to run. Where am I going to get food for my family? Where am I going to get a job if I don't go and do this? Right? So this is the situation where these Christians are living, and this is what Jesus is speaking to. Revelation 2, 8 through 11. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. So he's just hearkening back to that vision John has already had of Jesus that we read a couple of weeks ago, where he's got the white hair, flaming eyes, double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. And when he speaks, it's like the roar of many waters, the ground shakes, right? He's got the burnished bronze feet. Scary Jesus right? The Jesus who has to say, uh, wait, no, get up, be, don't be afraid, I have something to tell you, right? That Jesus, so he's just reminding John that this is who is saying this to Smyrna, all right? Verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. All right, so verse 8. I said references, but tells us who this Jesus is. Verse 9, again, it's very important that we acknowledge that Jesus knows your tribulation. He's paying attention. This is a theme. You're going to suffer, but I'm paying attention. Good job. Right? Jesus applauds. He's looking. The only thing worse than suffering is feeling like you're suffering alone. So in every one of these things where there's any kind of bad news, what you see is Jesus is looking. He's not at a distance somewhere. By the Spirit, he is here right now. He is in your life right now. So the stuff that you're suffering in or wrestling over, the stuff that Chris Nagel addressed, right? He's there and he sees it and he knows, right? But what does he mean by this statement, you're rich? He says, isn't he talking out of both sides of his mouth? 
I see your poverty, but you're rich. What's he? What's that about? When you read that, you should stop for like two days. Because Jesus doesn't ever talk out of both sides of his mouth. He means something. He acknowledges that they are materially poor but spiritually rich. The implication in these verses is that their spiritual riches are connected to their persecution. They're being tested and will be tested more, which is producing great spiritual wealth. Okay? But Jesus is not real big on material wealth. He is not impressed by it. He's not particularly concerned with giving you lots of it. He may or he may not, but he doesn't feel bad when you don't have it. He's not, oh man, oh, I forgot to give Eduardo that new car. Oh, poor guy, he's suffering without that thing, right? He doesn't get bent out of shape about it. It's not that he doesn't care about you. It's just that the thing he's most concerned about is making you spiritually rich, like embarrassingly spiritually rich, wallowing in spiritual riches, okay? Like a pig in slop just, just laying there in spiritual riches just so much you can't, you don't even know what to do with it all. I got so much spiritual riches, I don't know where to spend it, right? That's what he's most concerned about, not and the, one of the ways you get spiritually rich is suffering, which includes not having much stuff sometimes. You will never get an apology from Jesus because he didn't give you enough stuff. You won't ask either because you'll see, right, when you, when you see him, you'll also see that the scales of eternity are against you and in his favor, and there is nothing he owes you, right? And the fact that he gave you anything other than eternal punishment is a glorious mercy, right? And the fact that he is now bestowing upon you enormous, unimaginable eternal spiritual riches is just too much. You're not going to go, yeah, but my car... It was terrible. I never got that promotion. You're not going to say it, right? You may say it now. So how can persecution cause spiritual wealth? Well, let's look at it. One is the cost of discipleship. Matthew 19, Jesus has an encounter with a rich man. You may remember the story. This man has been a devout Jew, having dedicated himself to the law. He's a good guy. He has done everything right. He's made all the right moves, memorized all the right scriptures, done all the right things. And he comes to Jesus wanting to know, how can I be a, your disciple? I want to be your disciple. He's the guy that everybody wants in their church. Okay? Jesus tells him to go sell everything he owns and give the money to the poor. That's not unfair. That's the same deal he gave every other disciple. Right? They had all done the same thing left home, left everything just to follow Jesus. None of them were like driving the Lexus behind Jesus on the way to where they were going. They, were all, they had all forsaken everything, including every responsibility to follow Jesus. Jesus gives him the same deal. And the rich man leaves sad. He may have gone and done what Jesus said. He may not have. We don't get a follow-up story. Sometimes I wonder if he did. Go do what Jesus said. We don't know for sure, but what Jesus says about him after that is it's harder, it's hard to be rich and follow him. It's easier to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Why is that? It's because the cost is higher. If you're poor and have nothing, and Jesus says, go give away all that you have, you take that nickel in your pocket and you flick it to somebody and you follow Jesus, right? Because that's all you have. I have nothing. But if you have a lot and Jesus says, give away all that you have and follow me, it's, that's sad. It's costing you more because you're rich. 
so being rich is actually, according to Jesus, a handicap. It's a handicap to your following him. That's why the pursuit of riches is so dangerous. Wanting to be rich is because you're agreeing with a demonic deception that being rich will help you follow Jesus, and it won't. It'll be a temptation to not follow him. It will make you sad because he might say to you, give that away. And you kind of go, man, I wish I'd never even had this. This is the upside down kingdom principle that we Americans are very uncomfortable with. I don't know why the prosperity gospel teachers have never read these verses. I don't know what they say about it. I don't know how you get around this guy. All the verses in the Bible that say riches are scary, they're dangerous, they will pierce you, they will make you hurt, they will get in your way, and yet we all go around going, well, we're Americans, we're the exception. It's like, no. So the cost of this, he, he was sad because he was rich. Jesus offered him the same deal he gave the disciples. Hence, Jesus' follow-up statement that it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. I'm not against money. I'm not saying poverty is, makes you holy. Because you can be proud and be poor. You can use your poverty as a source of bitterness against God to shake your fist at God, shake your fist at the man and say, nobody likes me. If God really loved me, he wouldn't let me suffer like this. But the opposite is also not true. Money is not your problem. (laughs) And it is certainly not the answer. If someone said to you, I'm going to give you a billion dollars, it ought to scare you to death. It ought to just make you, oh, I don't know. That's scary. Can my soul handle that? Can it? I don't know. I don't play the lottery. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't believe, I don't know about the ethics and morality of playing the lottery, but, you know, the real reason is I'm scared of it. I've read enough of these verses. <laughs> I don't want to be the rich man shuffling away going, going to cost me so much. That's why I think Jesus doesn't get too worked up when we don't have a lot of stuff. It's because he sees it as a blessing. I'm just being, I'm just going easy on you. (laughs) I'm making it easy for you, Cotton, because I don't know that you can handle that. I don't know where your motivation would go if you had everything you wanted. So that's one way that This lack of material riches can lead to spiritual riches is that the cost is lighter on the disciple of Jesus when we have less. And then we have the crown of life, right? This is the second way that they are rich, even though they are materially poor. It's right here in verse 10. I just read it. It says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Where are your riches? They are in the future. In your eternal future, that's where the real riches are. And this is a blip, a blink of an eye. It may feel like it's forever, especially if it's hard. It's like time slows down, not when you're having fun. Time slows down when it's hard, and it seems like every day, every 24 hours is the longest 24 hours you've ever experienced because it's hard. And Jesus says, the crown is in your future, not right now. If they are faithful in the face of persecution or persecuted because of their faithfulness, then they will receive honor and riches in heaven, and whatever riches are in heaven, those who are faithful will get it. Whatever that is, whatever riches are in heaven, I don't think it's going to be cash. I mean, who cares? Whatever that is, you're going to have lots of it if you just are faithful in the face of persecution. This is a consistent feature of the book of Revelation. Jesus is always putting the reward in the future and saying, work for that. That's way better. Work towards that. That's your hope. That's your passion. That's your zeal. 
That's, what's, that's worth living for. That's why you should be faithful is what I'm going to give you in the future. Okay? It's hard for us. But we want it now, right? Well, there's a new iPhone. Heaven is better than earth. Future is better than present. It's interesting, I think, that slander is one of the types of persecution that they have to faithfully endorse. We need to talk about this for a minute. So we tend to think about persecution in this very classic sort of way. You know, some guy holding a gun to your head saying, deny Christ. It's usually in some foreign country in our imagination. And that's what we, we use the word persecution, and that is happening, okay? It's happening right now in many places in the world. And so we think of persecution as this thing's happening there, like in the Middle East someplace, and that's, that's, or they're being thrown into prison. And so that's happening there, but this is America where we're free, and I can't conceive of how we would get to a place where that would happen here. I can, by the way. But if that happens, it's a long ways away. And so la-di-da, we just repass these scriptures and don't think about it. But persecution here is not just that. It is that. But it's also slander. Being misunderstood. Now that feels a little more familiar. Slander is being misrepresented. Betrayed talked about, gossiped about, sold down the river, stabbed in the back, lied or gossiped about. That guy's a Christian. You know what they believe? They hate people that aren't like them. And you want to say, no, we don't. You start defending yourself. Clickety, clickety, clack, 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 clack on the keyboard. Because this stuff rarely happens like out in real life anymore. It's all, I mean, internet is still real life, but you know what I mean. Reproach is being insulted, mocked, or verbally abused. That's a little more direct. I've been mocked before. It's an awful, awful feeling. It is soul crushing. I don't care who you are, unless something's really wrong with you. And you have pride that is impervious. Being directly mocked is one of the worst feelings. It's humiliating, and you may have thought you were this really confident person, and then some stranger is pointing at you and laughing. It's the worst. And these people are friends and neighbors. Friends and neighbors. People in the synagogue that they worshipped at every week. People they'd grown up with. And they are pushing them out from under the shelter that Judaism enjoyed, knowingly, into poverty, prison, and possibly death. So the consequences of being reviled and slandered were not just hurt feelings, but it was that, oh, now I might go to prison. Now I can't find work. Now I can't feed my family. I am literally, we are starving to death. When the person next door that I have gone to church with my whole life is eating fat and happy. Starving to death in the middle of one of the most opulent cities in the world at the time. And your family is starving. Not because you made this glorious stand on the street corner with a megaphone preaching about Jesus. But simply because you refuse to quietly refuse to go make a sacrifice to the emperor and your neighbor sold you out all they had to do was not say anything and it would have been fine and now you can't feed your family I like and we should point out that Jesus is not happy about this look at what he calls them Jesus insults them he calls them false Jews in a synagogue of Satan. You are a church of Satan. You say you're worshiping me. You say you're worshiping Yahweh, we should say. But you're not. You are a synagogue 
of Satan. And he says they're not even real Jews. Now, what does he mean by that? He's not talking about ethnicity. He's talking about something bigger. This is Paul's one new man doctrine in Ephesians 2, which I talked about several weeks ago in that uh, 12 things series. Jesus has died and risen in order to create a new spiritual Israel that is not defined by borders or ethnicity, but by being in Christ. And what he is saying about these people that have sold them down the river is he's saying, they are not in me. They are not my people. They are a synagogue. I'll say there's no clearer way to say it than that. He said, you who are suffering persecution at their hands are my people. I'm going to crown you. I'm going to give you a crown if you will suffer well, right? So hard words. I would like to never have Jesus say that about me. Remember, this is the Jesus with the sword out of his mouth. (laughs) 1 Peter 4, 12 to 16, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised (laughs) at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. This is weird. I can't believe this is happening. Verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But... Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So we need to understand that persecution is not just something that the world does to us. It is also going to be something that so-called Christians do to us as well. It's something we don't talk about a lot. Last week I told you that there are churches that are not really churches because Jesus has left the building. Those churches filled with people who say they are Christians but are not, according to Jesus' definition, will join in the slander against the real church. They will participate and even encourage the world to persecute us. That is a promise from Jesus. That's not me going, I'm not whining about it. Peter says, don't be surprised. I'm not surprised. I'm just saying this is what Jesus says is going to happen. There's something about really following Jesus that puts you in between. The world, who's like, I don't like what you're saying. And the Pharisees, who say, you're not religious enough. Or I don't like what you're saying. Anytime the Pharisees are really happy with you, you're not in a good place. This is what it's like to follow Jesus. This is what happened to Jesus, isn't it? We should not be surprised when false churches or synagogues of Satan, according to Jesus, turn against true churches and even encourage the world to do the same. It has happened, it is happening, and it will continue to happen. Generally speaking, when you follow Jesus and stay true to his word, that's where you'll find yourself. So I think just in the recent couple of years, I've seen, we've probably seen some of these in the news of churches, pastors, uh, Christian music artists, worship leaders, authors, all sorts of people who were kind of big deals in the body of Christ in America have just walked away. Or very openly kind of question the whole thing. And I've looked at each one of those that I could find. And a common theme in every single one is this deep desire to fit in with the world. To clear up the misunderstanding. And to say, no, 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 we're not not hateful people. And to start apologizing for the church and the way the church has acted. And I'm not saying the church has acted well. I'm very critical. Right? We've said and done some stupid things. 
The 80s were a nightmare. We did not respond well to AIDS. We didn't do a good job, right? We're still paying for that. We did not respond well to, you know, teenage pregnancy. Really didn't. Okay, there's a lot of things we should have done better and should be doing better. But this desire to be received and understood by the world is deadly. I don't want to be misunderstood. What about Jesus? Jesus stood there on trial and got accused of all sorts of stuff. And what did he do? He just stood there and said nothing. You know how hard that is? You're scrolling through Twitter and some atheist guy who's reading the Bible and he says something like, well, if you don't like homosexuals, you just stone them. Is that what your Bible says? Complete ignorance, right? Says something and you're just like, oh, that feeling of being misunderstood is gnawing at you. I'm just going to fix it. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to explain. I'm just going to explain. <laughs> that feeling, you got to get used to it. That gnawing feeling of being misunderstood. Having coworkers find out that you're a Christian and make a list of assumptions about, about you. They're going to assume they know who you voted for. They're going to assume they know what political party you're in. They're going to assume they know exactly how you feel about homosexuals, about marriage, about economics, about gun control, about abortion, about everything. They have a list, a long, an increasingly long list of assumptions that are permanently attached to the word Christian. And most of those are either completely wrong or mostly wrong. And your desire to just fix that is, no, 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 I'm not like that. And you feel that when the words come out of your mouth, it's like pointless, right? It's just going into empty air because their assumptions about you are so powerful and so strong and they are fixed, not just by them, but by Satan himself. And you are not, you are barking up the wrong tree. The answer is to silently just say, nothing. Smile. Be like Jesus. Be misunderstood. And say, oh, this is sort of what Jesus felt like. That path of trying to always be understood and always clarify and always fix every misconception about you and every other Christian will take you down a path away from Jesus. It's dangerous. I think it's the biggest temptation for most established Christians in this country is the desire to just move a little bit towards the culture so that they will understand and receive you. And you think, oh, I'm just trying to be it change it from the inside out you know that was one of the biggest battles in germany in world war ii amongst german christians is you had dietrich bonhoeffer saying hitler's evil we can't let him take over the church and they were having these debates and the de debates were between no we need to start our own church even if he kills us for it between those people and people who were saying very reasonable things, you know what, I'm in government. I'm going to work really hard to be a really good German government employee, and I'm going to change it from the inside out and work my way up, and maybe even one day I'll be able to be in the room with Hitler and influence him towards Christian morality. a nice idea up to a certain point. <laughs> and Jesus says, look, don't, don't be surprised. Peter says, don't be surprised when they revile you and speak ill about you. And that's persecution. It is, the, is a part of it. Be happy that you're not in prison. 
So what should our response to be, be? We must get over our need to be understood. We will never enjoy the luxury of being represented accurately and honestly in the public square. That's the first thing. Secondly is 1 Peter 4.15. I also see a lot of Christians who turn, want to turn everything into some epic stand for Christ. Whether it's a baking a cake or selling scarves on Etsy. I don't know if you saw that one this past week. Or commenting on someone else's post on Facebook. Some people just go around poking bears and then claiming persecution when the bears bite. I'm not saying you should always never ever say true things and speak up. I'm saying don't be surprised when you poke a bear if it bites you. And don't go throwing your hands up in the air like it's the worst thing in the world. Look, this lady's selling scarves on Etsy. It's very fascinating. She puts this verse, no context to it, on her profile that was very obviously not for gay marriage. Right? It's against Etsy's policies. They say, take it down or you, we're going to take your thing down. She leaves it up. They take her thing down, she loses her business, and then starts going crazy on the internet saying Etsy is persecuting her for her faith. If God told you to do that, fantastic. But don't go running around the internet afterwards going, I can't believe they did what they said they were going to do. <laughs> These are not Christians, and you're using their platform according to their terms of service. It was very clear, right? Our terms of service say you cannot put anything religious on your da-da-da-da-da. Political stuff, religious stuff, it's all out. We just want you to sell stuff. And they felt the need, fine. I'm not questioning whether or not they did what God wanted them to do. I'm questioning the alarm and the cry of, you poked a bear, knowingly poked a bear, and it bit you. Now you don't get to cry about it, right? This is not Christ-like behavior. This is not Jesus standing and being interrogated and lied about and quietly saying nothing until he's asked what question. Are you the Messiah? And he says, I am. You will see quotes, Daniel. That's one question I'll answer. We need to have better discernment about when it's time to take a stand and how to take a stand in a Christ-like way. Suffering the consequences of a lack of discernment, wisdom, and godly character is not what is happening in the church in Smyrna. Okay, if you look at 1 Peter, we just read it a minute ago, 4.15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. So if you're, if you commit murder, and then you go to prison, you don't get to call that persecution. If you're a thief and you steal in order to feed your starving family and you get your hand cut off, you don't get to call that persecution. If you're meddling in things that have nothing to do with you and people get mad at you for it, if you act like a jerk and people get upset, and you lose your job. It's not persecution. I mean, you think about that. Act like Jesus. Right? It's like the guy, I heard a story recently about a guy who got fired from his job. And he said it was, he was, every day he was witnessing to this guy at work. And the guy was kind of maybe on the verge of becoming a Christian. And he would spend hours at work debating this guy about Jesus and this guy's like oh, you know I'm going to come to church with you this weekend he comes to church with him and he's really seriously thinking about becoming, becoming a Christian and the guy who's been witnessing to him gets fired and he says it's, it's persecution they, they fired me because I was talking about Jesus at work and he's like no you got fired because you were spending hours not working right not doing the thing they paid you to do right and he was like, I can't, the, the church is full of people like that. 
It's full of people who want to be misunderstood and are willing to make any compromise required in order to be understood. And it's full of people who are going around being jerks to people and then complaining about, half complaining, half bragging about being persecuted for their faith when really they're being persecuted because they're not nice people or they're lazy or they don't have a good character. They're not acting like Jesus. And Peter's really clear. You don't get to call those persecution. Persecution is being a faithful witness to Christ. Persecution is saying, I will not bow down to the emperor and call him God. I will not worship him, and I will not allow there to be confusion about where I stand on that. And then the culture saying, well, you don't get to participate anymore in this culture. You don't get to work, you don't get to work where you want to work. You don't get to shop where you want to shop. You don't get to have the friends you want to have friends with. You don't get to participate anymore. That is what's happening here in Smyrna. Persecution is a great clarifier, I think. It strips away pretense and false faith. The persecution of others reminds us of the stakes and of the reality of what we believe. The church is built on the graves of martyrs. I want to read you a quick story to close. I'm sorry to the Spanish translators. I didn't think about this till this morning. It's about a famous guy named Polycarp. I'll try to, some of the quotes in here have these and thou's in it. I'll try to take those out mainly for the Spanish translators. All right. It is possible that Polycarp was bishop of the church at Smyrna at this time. He was a pupil of John. He was one of John's disciples, the guy who put this together, Revelation. He probably went to the church in Smyrna. Polycarp was his disciple. So we're talking about one of his first generation after John. Faithful to death, This venerable leader was burned at the stake in the year A.D. 155. He had been asked to say, Caesar is Lord, but refused. So brought to the stadium, the proconsul, which is the Roman governor, urged him, saying, Swear, and I will set you at liberty or set you free. Reproach Christ. Polycarp answered, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? When the proconsul again pressed him, the old man answered, Since you are vainly urgent that I should swear by the fortune of Caesar and pretend not to know who and what I am, hear me declare with boldness, I am a Christian. A little later, the proconsul answered, I have wild beasts at hand. And to these I will cast you, except you repent. I will cause you to be consumed by fire, seeing you despise the wild beast, if you will not repent. But Polycarp said, you threaten me with fire, which burns for an hour, and after a little while is extinguished. But you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. But why wait? Bring forth what you will. I'll wait. Soon afterwards, the people began to gather wood and kindling. The Jews, especially according to custom, eagerly assisting them. And thus Polycarp was burned at the stake. By all accounts, this was right here in Smyrna. So this is where it went for them. Soon after the writing of this prophecy. So this promise from Jesus, remember this. This is not just a prophet saying this. This is Christ himself, Lord over his church. He holds the church in his hand. And he says to them, you're about to suffer for 10 days. The 10 days, don't get caught up in the 10 days. It just means a short period of time. Significant but short period of time. You'll be thrown into prison. You're going to suffer. 
Why? Not because you're a jerk. Not because you're a thief. But because you are faithful to worship me and only me in the midst of a culture that demanded you do otherwise. And so this promise, not all the promises of God feel like blessings. All your promises are yes and amen. This is a promise from Jesus that not just Smyrna will suffer, but you and I will. We will be reviled, misunderstood, misrepresented. Some of us might be thrown into prison. Some of us might be killed. But I say, why wait? I want to hang out with Polycarp. What a cool dude. What we're doing here is worth dying for. I think that's what the persecution of others reminds us that what we're doing, though we are not experiencing this, I'm not, I probably won't ever be burned at the stake. That's barbaric. But he was willing, if not eager, to do it because he believed that what he was doing was that big of a deal. He believed that worshiping Jesus was that big of a deal. He believed that the church was that big of a deal. And we sit here in 2019 in America and we forget because we're comfortable and we are rich. We are materially rich. And so we forget that what we're doing here is worth actually worth dying for. It really is worth suffering for. It's worth being persecuted for. It's worth starving for. It's worth being burned at the stake for. It's worth losing friends over, losing careers and jobs over. It's worth being slandered and having, getting kicked off the internet. It's worth losing your Etsy shop for. It's worth all of those things and more. And for me, it adds a seriousness to what, what I'm doing. And I hope it does for you too. Amen. So why don't we stand up? I'd like to pray. First, I'd like to just thank God for all of those in church history that have paid that price because they're still alive. I'd also like to thank God for those right now around the world that are paying those prices. And then I'd like to ask God to make us add a, a weight and a seriousness to our faith this morning. That he would commend us in the same way that he did that church. Amen? So let's do that.